This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Megan Wecker, the president of Skyline Furniture. Founded in 1946 in the suburbs of Chicago, Skyline has always been a family business. It's also always stood apart from the crowd for a willingness to try new things. Megan joined the company at an opportune time, just as e-commerce was beginning to take off. Ever since, she's pushed Skyline to master the nuances of making furniture to sell online. We talked about why she launched a startup, Cloth & Company, within Skyline, why she's betting on digitally printed fabrics, and why Megan thinks we're living through a major tipping point for e-commerce. This podcast was sponsored by Serena and Lily. With a dedicated trade team and design shops from coast to coast, Serena and Lily's exclusive trade program has the personalized service, products, and custom details you need to execute your vision seamlessly. From trade-only discounts to complimentary swatches, COM to custom by the inch, being a Serena and Lily trade member offers endless inspiration, giving you and your clients the unique look you deserve. Join their trade program by visiting serenaandlily.com slash trade. This podcast has also been sponsored by Artistic Tile. For over 30 years, Artistic Tile has been a leading innovator, creating designs that define the direction of the tile industry. Crafting exquisite patterns in the highest quality stone, glass, ceramic, and porcelain, Artistic Tile's mission of bringing art to life has helped create outstanding spaces around the world. Visit artistictile.com slash boh to explore their extensive range of options and let Artistic Tile take your project to the next level. And now, on with the show. I feel as if the industry today insists that we start this conversation by talking about lead times. So let's get the lead time conversation in and out of the way. It's, it's top of mind for, for every designer and every supplier. Tell, <laughs> tell me. me, tell me. Yeah. Well, for us, I think it's unlike a lot of the industry, but my version of lead times right now is quite optimistic. So when we were first hit with COVID, we, increased our lead times. Our standard lead time before COVID was two to three weeks. We ended up increasing to eight weeks because we had to close due to COVID and stay-at-home orders. And so we increased eight weeks. And after coming back and reopening and getting back up to speed, we, we fluctuated between five weeks and eight weeks, just depending on the order volume coming in, because that had increased quite significantly and we continue to have issues with COVID popping up. So between five and eight weeks has been where we've been hovering since we reopened um, in May, early June. And I know there have been a lot of disruptions to the supply chain recently with foam and other raw materials, you know, either due to COVID or storms or a whole host of reasons. But fortunately for us, we have not been impacted by those. As an e-commerce uh, focused company lead times are very near and dear to our heart. And so, you know, one of the things we've always prided ourselves on is our fast lead times for fully customized furniture. And pre pandemic, we were stating two to three weeks, but we were averaging about seven days. And then at the kind of peak of pandemic, we went up to eight. And now we're hovering between 
three to five weeks now. Interesting. Interesting. Let's, let's tell people a little bit about the family business, how it got started and, and ultimately when you came to the business. So tell us a little of the history. So my grandfather started Skyline Furniture in 1946 when he returned from World War II. He was a Navy pilot in World War II. And after coming back from overseas, he settled back in the Chicago area where my grandmother's family was from. And he started the factory that we're in today. And we've always been a made-to-order upholstery factory. And he got his start because my great-grandfather had an upholstery factory prior to World War II in downtown Chicago. He unfortunately lost that business during the Great Depression, but still remained in contact with all of his industry friends. And so when my grandfather came back, that was his connection to get into the furniture business. So we were always making upholstered furniture in Chicago. It was a hub for the furniture manufacturing industry at the time. There were quite a few manufacturers located here. But as that part of the industry really moved south, my grandfather decided he wanted to stay in Chicago. And so we stayed here. And Chicago also was home to a lot of the big direct mail companies. So Montgomery Wards was here, Sears, Spiegel, all the direct mail catalog business. So we started to turn our focus towards upholstering furniture that you could sell through a catalog. So at the time, you know, customers would call and order their furniture through the catalog. We would get the order, uh, make it and put it in a box and ship it directly <laughs> to that customer. And fast forward, and that became a lot of the first people to play in e-commerce because it was very similar to the direct mail business. You would type in your order, we would get it and then mail it direct to the consumer. So that's really how we got our start in e-commerce. We were um, selling Marshall Fields Direct. Marshall Fields Direct became Target.com when Target opened a .com. JCPenney's was very early on in their .com experience. So we really got started right when furniture started to sell online. And I happened to be 22 years old, coming out of college <laughs> at the time. And my dad said, hey, let's you know give this a go for a year. And he kind of gave me the authority to design whatever furniture I wanted. So I decided to design furniture that I wanted to buy for my first apartment in Chicago. And turns out that's also who was shopping online at the time. And so it was sort of the right place at the right time. And we really became... Um, sort of hyper-focused on the e-commerce channel. And it has been a wild ride over the past, <laughs> you know, 10, 15 years, but an exciting one. And so we've really seen e-commerce go from the very, very early days with a lot of our retailers to, you know, who they are now in the space. So it's pretty exciting. So I want to get a little bit more deeply into that. And I mm -hmm. came across a quote from your father. Mm -hmm. <laughs> where he's from, a, from an article we had written about sort of family businesses and that transition. Yeah. And one of the things he said was one of the hardest parts of letting the next generation take the reins, especially when they want to alter parts of the businesses that are performing well, mm -hmm. is how do you sort of 
let go of that notion, no, no, our business is selling to these retailers and to bricks and mortar. And as you were saying earlier, these catalog businesses and you seeing this, this e-commerce channel as mm-hmm. the future and, and where the business was going to go. Tell me about that conversation, not only with your father, but I mean, with all of you sort of mm-hmm. navigating the, the evolution of the industry and so many of the companies that you mentioned early on are mm-hmm. gone. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So many of those great catalog companies don't exist anymore. Right. And because they were so disrupted by e-commerce. So tell us, tell us sort of the, uh, the evolution over the years as th- through this lens of your business. Mm-hmm. So I think I was fortunate in that I was young and coming in and not asking to completely disrupt our business model at Skyline. <laughs> So custom-made furniture, putting it in a box, drop shipping to the consumer. We were doing that for a lot of retailers, both on the brick-and-mortar side, catalog, and then this new channel that I was interested in, which was e-com. And so I think my sort of selfish want to move (laughs) into that direction didn't totally ask that we depart from everything that was really paying the bills at the time. Right. And so I, I think that was, you know, fortunate for me. I also think my dad, you know, has always sort of let me play in different areas and really given me that opportunity to feel like if you want to try it, go for it and make it happen. I was proving out small wins along the way, which then afforded me a little bit more rope to say, okay, let's go over here and do this. And if I can make it happen, then here, now actually let's all go do this. And so, (laughs) you know, my dad is also always been a very big advocate for technology. And in the very early days of all different types of technology, he was an early adopter. And so I think he was also very intrigued by what e-commerce was going to do. Well, and when did e-commerce really show up and who was on board early on and who was totally resistant in, in terms of the companies you were dealing with in, in, in terms of your customers? I mean, tell me, because I'm, I'm trying to remember myself, when was e-commerce, when was that tipping point for e-commerce? I think we're living through one, if I'm (laughs) honest. I think this is a big one for e-commerce right now because I think the entire industry in the world is looking at e-com as the way to have carried their business for the past year and also realizing the potential it has. And so I think there were early adopters for sure. I think, you know, Target.com, like I said, Marshall Fields Direct, which turned into Target.com for years. Um, while maybe it was under the radar, also we're playing and trying and, you know, adopting new technologies along the way, which were a lot of learnings over, you know, the course of 10 years. So I look at the, the guys that were in direct mail um, had sort of a, a glimpse at what the opportunity was. And then there was a lot of e-commerce native companies like Wayfair who, you know, very early on were under the radar of a lot of the big retailers in our industry. And so they too had, 
you know, could move fast, could be nimble, could try things and are still doing that even at the scale they've grown to. But I think those are the the players that have had the advantage is the ones who can, who can try and move and pivot as e-commerce has needed because technology changes very quickly and, you know, you have to be able to test it. And if it doesn't work, move and try something different. And I think that's been the, the name of the game on the e-commerce side for many years. So I would say, you know, we have always been looked at as the alternative furniture manufacturer. We were never really considered a real furniture manufacturer because of our concentration in e-commerce. And I always say, you know, we were selling e-commerce before it was cool to sell (laughs) e-commerce. So, you know, I think it's far more accepted and talked about now, given the numbers and growth it is especially putting out this year. But in the past two to three years. In the past two, three years, there, there's been this greater acceptance. Yes, yes, I think. And, and intrigue from customers who have not, or retailers who have not really played in it before, who are looking to get more serious about it. Investing, putting a lot more investment, either financially, time, people, all of those things. I'm starting to see that happen a lot more. Who, who didn't want this to happen? Who didn't want e-commerce to be, I mean, I, I remember thinking about Walmart, for example, for so long, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. didn't believe that yep. e-commerce could be a, me- a meaningful revenue source for that. They said, we have so many stores. What does it matter? Yeah. Why do we need this? Right. And then they went out and made a bunch of acquisitions and mm-hmm. said, no, nope, mm-hmm. we're flipping the switch and e-commerce is, is going to be a huge driver for us. Yeah. So I think the people that have been later to consider it or adopt it are the ones who have really strong brick and mortar businesses, because I think there is a genuine um, concern about disrupting that side of their business, whether that, you know, the thought is that by bringing people online, you're stopping them from going in the store. I don't know that I agree with that. But I, I tend to see a lot of retailers be hesitant, because all of the focus is on continuing the brick and mortar side of strategic goals they've put in place each year. I remember the unfortunate Bopus name that buy online, pick up in store yeah. was, was given. And people used to joke and people used to tease and, and so many retailers thought, what's the point of that? Yeah. Buy online, pick up in store. Why would that ever be meaningful for people? Right. And now look, <laughs> it's the, that is the most used channel this year. Of any retailer who could offer it. Yep. Yeah, but so and I what, think it's it's something that people are going to look for in the future. I do believe what we lived through, you know, brought a level of convenience that people maybe hadn't experienced or or attempted to, and now are realizing, you know, it's it's a comfort that they could enjoy shopping in their home and just going and picking it up versus having to go in. Known for their unique coastal-inspired mix, Serena and Lily makes good design their business, working with trade professionals like you to transform interiors. Join their trade program to enjoy trade-only events and discounts, COM and complimentary swatches, and services tailored to your specific needs like extra customization options and extended returns. You can even use their design shops as an extension of your workspace. Become a trade member at serenaandlily.com slash trade. And now, back to the show. 
What is so challenging for the businesses that, as you were saying, we're going to have to learn a new language or alter their model? What what was so challenging for, for people to sort of get their heads around in terms of how the business would have to function differently to, to accommodate e-commerce in a meaningful way? Well, I think there is a mind shift that sort of, when I first came into the business, a lot of the discussions were had around, you know, complete, you were buying a head a bed with the matching end tables and the dresser and mirror that went with it. And that was sort of the mentality of collections and how people shopped. But I think what has happened over the past, you know, 10, 15 years is people are buying items. And so when you start looking at e-commerce, there it's a very item-driven business in terms of I'm going to shop for a bed or I'm going to shop for a chair. And there are algorithms that are boosting certain products to you based on your shopping preferences and that retailer. And so it's a very different uh, model for what the furniture retail industry came from. Um, and as was catalog, you know, I remember the days of catalog where you were measuring per square inch of a page and realizing how many dollars needed to be driven off of that one picture. And so it's, a, you have to look at it as a unique channel of what sells online is not what sells in a brick and mortar store and vice versa. I think the lines are blurring more as people become more comfortable shopping online. But traditionally, if I was looking for an optic white chair, I wouldn't go to a brick and mortar store and be able to find that because you wouldn't put an optic white chair on a floor because it would be dirty in <laughs> you know two days. But I could go online and find unique products that maybe furniture stores didn't carry. And I think as the world has changed and Amazon has made, Prime has made it so you can order something today and get it tomorrow, the ask for furniture to speed up and have that ease of delivery has also been put on the industry in terms of a how to deliver on that. I was reminded recently of the, the sort of great story of Walter Riston, the former chairman of Citibank in the 1970s. And he had made a huge investment in automatic teller machines. And much of the banking industry wasn't convinced that this was worth spending money on. Mm -hmm. And then the great snowstorm in New York City of 1978 came and the banks had to close for several days because there was two feet of snow and businesses came screeching to a halt and suddenly customers discovered the ATM machine and Citibank rolled out an ad campaign with images of people trudging through the snow. And it said the city never sleeps. And within three years, Citibank had doubled their New York depositor base because they had, people had fallen in love with the ATM machine. And, and that was the moment in time that people sort of attribute that that becoming part of our everyday lives. And, and I feel like COVID is, is doing that for every part of our industry in terms of this, this online adoption and the, and the speed at which we've seen all of this. And 
there's no going back. Correct. Yep. Right. I would agree. I would very much agree. Yeah. I think and the statistics being thrown around are we've advanced, some say 10 years, some say 50 in terms of the adoption that we're seeing that we would have otherwise not seen. And so there's no room for any of your retail partners to be left doubting this model Mm -hmm. anymore. Correct. So are you having conversations now with even some of the holdouts? Yes. We're having conversations with everyone. Yes, (laughs) very much so. It is here to stay. And now it's how do you get in it and how do you succeed in making it a meaningful part of the business? What is going to start to get added to this process now that that's going to make it even easier. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the 360 degree mm-hmm. perspectives mm-hmm. and lots of companies seem to be investing in, in the AR and the other technologies. Mm-hmm. What yeah, else I, do you I, think I, is going to be important? I believe content is going to be a very big focus this year. Um, just in general, like you said, 3d, AR, VR, shop the room type experiences. But I just think in general, as close as you can get people to the product through the screen is important. And whether that be video content, showing how it's produced, showing it in a room, um, dimensional drawings, videos showing how the product assembles. You really want customers to understand what they're buying up front and feel confident in the purchase that they're going to make, especially if they're new to buying big ticket items like this online. We also send out swatches because I think there's, you know, still a need to be able to see fabrics in hand to be able to view the colors and texture live. So having some of those tools still be accessible uh, through the internet is still going to be key, but content has been a big headline for the world of e-commerce for the past probably two years. And I just think 3D is making it easier for everybody to do that. It's becoming more accessible, especially in COVID. It's been very difficult to do photo shoots um, and move product around easily and get people in a space to shoot photography. So I think that also has fast forwarded a lot of the industry looking at 3D and trying to understand, you know, what, what's available in terms of visualization tools. Well, and and let's tell listeners who might not be familiar with what you were able to do for a market this past year mm-hmm. during during COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and and a, and a sort of a wonderful partnership that that I guess originally came out of something you were doing with One Kings Lane back yeah. in the back in the day. Yes. Yep. So, so tell us about that. So we have been very excited about the 3D space for probably about five years now. We, When we bought our digital printer and we started creating all of our textiles, wanted a way to lay fabric to frame virtually that would allow us to create, you know, photography in a, in a minute if we needed to and visualize it and make it look very realistic. And so we started to learn a lot about the 3D space. We also do a lot of customization in Chicago. So we wanted a tool that would allow our customers to be able to to visualize the custom products that they were building. So we spent a lot of time trying to build out customization tools and, you know, lay fabrics to frame and work on lighting and things that would make our products look very realistic in a 3D setting. And then COVID hit and we 
had been playing with 3D spaces because a lot of our customers use uh, shop the room type technology. But then we realized pretty quickly we weren't going to be going to trade shows with COVID. And we had this wonderful new line of product and collection that we wanted to get to market. So we decided to see if we could transform our virtual spaces into what we called our Skyline Apartments. And so we partnered with Amra Treen from All3D, who had worked with us previously in building customization tools for One Kings Lane. And she was launching her new company at the time. And she said, let's go. So we created four Skyline Apartments. Each had a style IQ. And we dropped all of our new collections into these four apartments. And we were able to give all of our customers a virtual walkthrough that replaced our market. And I think it may have been one of our most successful markets to date. <laughs> so I'm a big believer in it. Well, and, and I want to dive into that a little bit because mm-hmm. I'm wondering how it leaves you thinking about markets going forward. Yeah. So I think one of the things myself and our, our team here have really been focused on is if we don't take the opportunity to look at everything differently now, given COVID, we're missing an opportunity. So I do believe trade shows will come back, but I do believe they should and can look different than what they have looked like for many years. Uh, And I think a lot of our customers that we spoke with about these virtual tours were very open to the idea of them looking different. I think retail shopping experiences are looking different. So why wouldn't we also consider trade shows to look different? I don't, I don't know. For us, we're coming out with our second virtual market right now. We will be um, hosting those starting next week. And we are taking those virtual walkthroughs and also putting them on our trade portal so that our design trade um, program partners can go on and do these walkthroughs at their leisure too. I think, you know, we will continue to utilize virtual type market uh, spaces, even if traditional markets come back to some degree. Tell me what going to High Point Mm -hmm. used to be for you. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, tell me how you imagine it after this. Right. I definitely don't feel that we need to be as present there to have the same impact. I do believe there is some components of it that we would miss if it went away entirely. So I envision we will be there. I just think we will use it as another tool in our toolkit rather than the tool to get new product to market. Natural stone has seen a resurgence in design. Artistic tile offers a meticulously curated selection of slabs sourced from around the world. Its 20,000 square foot state-of-the-art facility is just minutes from Manhattan. Find a unique statement piece or that perfect neutral, virtually or in person, by making an appointment at artistictile.com slash boh. And now, back to the show. I'm deeply interested in the digital fabric printing side of the of the business. So Yeah. So let so tell me about that how that first got started and, and the big investment you made in this giant digital printer and Clothing Company was founded in 2016. It came after we purchased the digital printer uh, that we put in line at the factory. 
and realized that we had this amazing new tool that allowed us to design and create and print art on demand. And so we founded Cloth and Company. We, I like to call it the cooler, younger sister to Skyline Furniture. <laughs> it is where all our ideation on textiles comes both for our retailers, but also for our own collections that we bring to market. We got into the deck act pillow business and the outdoor pillow business through Cloth & Co. And we also launched into furniture collections that offer unique silhouettes that are a little bit of a step up in terms of quality and um, construction from a lot of the Skyline line. And so it's really our view of design on the world. And it's, it's a place where we can play, you know, with collabs and influencers and work with them to create unique collections that we bring up. Tell me about specifically this giant printer. Yeah. And, and what it can do and, and, and sort of why it was such a transformational tool that arrived one day and, mm-hmm. and even, what was everyone in the Skyline factory making of this? Thinking, yeah. <laughs> so these digital printers have been around for a long time. This is what the fast fashion segment of the apparel world built their businesses off of H&M and Zara. So digital printing is not new, but what was new was the inks and the chemistries had come along far enough to allow for it to be um, test for home and meet the standards required to print on fabric that you would use for upholstery. So we were, I think, the second company to purchase one in the United States, and we were the first furniture company. And it worked for our business for so many reasons, because our business has always been based around print and pattern and fashion. And so, you know, this gave us a a huge opportunity to lean into that and develop into unique designs that we previously couldn't do without making a pretty big investment in terms of, you know, 2000 yard MOQs and the financial investment of screens. And that would really only afford you one new design in one new colorway. And so we were only able to create unique newness without the printer if we had a retailer that was big enough to help commit to those MOQs. So once we put this massive printer uh, in the factory, <laughs> I think everyone did look at it a little bit like an alien had landed here. And we, <laughs> we had to learn. We spent a, a two years learning and trying to figure out how to make this work for our business. And mostly on building the base cloths, we had to you know, work with our current fabric suppliers to spec the right base cloth that could run through it. We learned a lot about digital printing with this type of ink. And so it it was a fun experience, but we knew right away it was a powerful one to our business because it would allow us to do exclusivity and a lot of the fun things that we could design into that we weren't able to do in years gone by. Well, so, you know, you mentioned MOQs and and just for listeners who might not know, that's a minimum order quantity. Mm -hmm. And it's often one of the 
one of the challenges with the fabric industry is Correct. you fall in love with something, but mm-hmm. then you need to order a hundred meters or yeah. you need to order a thousand meters or depending right. on whatever the mill is, is telling you at that given day. And this sounds like you could, you could really experiment with relatively small quantities. With none, you know, we were <laughs> printing no minimum. a no minimums. I mean, that was really what we had done is, virtually designed. And so we could design textiles, lay it on our 3D models, create a JPEG and push a product to market without actually making physical samples. Now we weren't totally doing that because like I told you before, it's still very much a craft to us. So we are making samples and making sure it sits well. And, you know, it's a a wonderful piece of furniture, but it was that fast in terms of being able to visualize design and change a pattern you know, if we wanted to change the background or change the scale, we could do that. And what was really cool in the early days was, you know, if you wanted to make a pattern pre-digital printing, you would send the artwork overseas, they would cut the screens, you would get a strike off, and you could go round and round creating that textile. It could take, you know, anywhere from (laughs) 60 to 90 days to create the one. So we put the printer in and on day one, we had a textile designer in Europe. We were here in the factory. We had another one in New York and we were calling each other and they were dropping files live to the printer and we were changing things and scaling and, you know, we could create an entire textile line in a day. And so it really was a low investment in terms of, you know, playing with new colors and scales, anything was possible. And if we sold none, it was no big deal. And if we sold thousands, we could print it here. So, you know, it was great from a product development standpoint. It's also great from an eco-friendly standpoint. You know, textiles is one of the most taxing things on our environment today, just in terms of waste and the pollutants that some of the chemicals from, you know, standard printing put out. So to be able to only print what you need and cut down on the waste in terms of being able to turn a pattern so that it's printing railroaded versus up the roll specific to our production allowed us to cut down on a lot of the excess, you know, fabric purchasing and, you know, scraps that we were putting out. So our carbon footprint went way down with the purchase of this. And in a, in a very similar way to how so many retailers were skeptical about e-commerce, mm-hmm. there are many, <laughs> many in the yeah. textile world yeah. who are highly skeptical yes. and who don't believe that the quality or yep. the durability or, or mm-hmm. sort of all these things with, mm-hmm. with digital with digital printing on fabric. What's your response to that? What's your, what's your own feeling about it? I think the, what the positives that it offers outweigh the negatives of what it offers. (laughs) And I think of it just like any technology in its early days, it's rough, but as it evolves and as learnings happen, it gets a lot better and a lot better. And so I think, yeah, in the early days, digital printing was stiff. The hand was tough. You know, there was different Why? things. What, what was what was because of the, mm-hmm. the material that was being used? Um, I think in our case, the the type of printer we bought does not have a 
pre-wash or a post-wash, which you would find in a traditional ah. textile setting. And right. so it's roll to roll and to end, and then it comes right off the printer and can go right into production. It So it had a stiffer hand because it didn't have a washing. But even that has come so far in the past five years since we've been working with this machine. And they're new. And I, I know from experience that, you know, we've, We've tried to make a lot of improvements and now we can do more than we did on day one. We're now printing on 100% linen. We're printing on outdoor fabrics. Our learnings have come far. We've pushed our technology partners in the printing side of the business to help us. And we've pushed our fabric suppliers to you know, rise to the challenge of how to make this type of printing a lot more like what everyone's used to on the traditional screen printing side. So yes, there are a lot of people who hesitate to say that this, this is a good way of, <laughs> you know, bringing textiles to life. But I disagree. I think, you know, I, you'd be hard pressed to see the difference with some of our prints in hand and know whether it was digitally printed or not. And I think it's going to get even better with time. And you mentioned that you were the first furniture company and this was only 2016 so i mean this yeah. was just a few years ago i mean have have there been many more that have come on board or i don't know of any i think we may still be the only ones crazy enough to do it but <laughs> so we're still out there by our by we ourselves might be on, on our but, <laughs> but you know i think it's also makes a lot of sense for our business because our business is broadly okay. made up of onesie twosies and custom made right. furniture and print and pattern and so that is a very unique need for our business model. And so it may not be the right fit for a lot of other furniture manufacturers in the space. And it, it's still a financial investment. It was, you know, a big investment for us, but it, it really did make sense for our business. We have room for a second one. And as we grow, I, I don't <laughs> see slowing down on, you know, what what is possible in digital printing. I look at that for all technology. I think anywhere you can grow to make you better, faster, stronger at what you do, it's it's worth the investment. Well, and and I'm I'm wondering, Megan, uh, and I I remember I remember Palette from One King's Lane, and it was a it was a very it was a very ambitious project that I that I was surprised. Uh, they were they were able to pull off in the way they were, or maybe they maybe they weren't. I don't I don't really know, but it, it's it's been something that the the industry has has often been been hesitant around how much customization or how much involvement and and engagement can we can we really let in? Tell me how for for cloth and co your your thinking about it and and sort of how you're sort of perhaps iterating on on this idea of what you want to do. Yeah. So on the skyline furniture side, we've always been very interested in customization because that is how we manufacture behind the scenes. Everything we do is custom made to order and one at a time. So we've always been big advocates for custom programs via our retailers and direct to our trade business. But the biggest uh, sort of roadblock that we had was the technology to be able to allow our retailers or end consumers or designers the ability to make those configurations and send that over to us via a visualization tool. So what we did was work with One King's Lane to launch a, a 
visualization tool that allowed <laughs> the end consumer to design the textile, which had never been done before. That allowed right. the end consumer to pick the scale, pick the color of their background versus the floral in the foreground, and then send that over to us along with the standard customization options of leg color or nail button color. And so that was a great learning for us. I think it was a learning for us. We, there were a lot of things that worked and a lot of things that I think we would look to iterate on in our next chapter of customization tools. Um, so that will be sort of where we look to explore in the future. Well, and, and I, I feel like in a way, this is so much of what the promise of digital printing was when it first came onto the scene, this notion of, of people being able to to go back and forth with really mm-hmm. specific custom fabric options. And I, and I wonder, help, help us understand what some of the challenges in really trying to execute that are. I think the biggest challenge I learned was that textile design is still also a trade. And so, you know, having multiple options outlined for you is great in terms of being able to select an existing textile design and pair it fabric to frame. But being able to actually design into great looking textiles is still a skillful art. And that as advanced as everything has come, you still need the experts in the area to help guide that level of customization and design. And so what we're looking into as we grow into custom is what what are the tools needed to help consumers ultimately design into a great product that they will love without needing to have gone to design school to learn how to design into textiles. And so that I think is where our biggest learning curve was. So the the good news for textile designers in the short term, the, 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 they're the, still very needed. <laughs> <laughs> we love them. They, they are an urgent part of of this whole Absolutely. process, and Absolutely. and it and, and it turns out not not to be so easy for the for the average consumer to to step up and and design their own uh, textile line. But correct. What the technology has given us is the ability to see what consumers are doing and how they look at customizing furniture. Are they going to the textile first? Are they are they interested in blue mostly? Or, you know, we can start to see their navigation patterns in terms of what's most important and then be able to cater to that level of customization for them, whether it's offering more print and pattern, less print and pattern. You know, we a lot of retailers have learned over the years that, you know, more selection doesn't always translate into more sales. So sometimes limiting the amount of options available, you know, can, can be a better experience. And I think it looks very different for the design community. They're much more well-versed in picking through bigger assortments of fabric versus an end consumer may only need five to seven prints offered to them in order to be able to really hone in and feel like they're customizing a product. Well, so, and, and, and so that listeners understand clearly the, the difference between Skyline and cloth and co how how are you managing the two businesses and and help us understand the difference between them yeah so skyline is a 75 year old (laughs) furniture manufacturing company with decades and decades of knowledge on how to manufacture products and family owned and very heavily family concentrated is 
going to stake core to us along with technology. We consider ourselves to be a 50% computer company, 50% manufacturing company, but it could be any products. And so that's where we get into manufacturing for our retail partners, manufacturing products for our design partners. Um, the products are vast. And on the Cloth & Co side, we call that our cooler younger sister uh, to Skyline in that that is more of our design house. That is where our textile ideation is coming from. Our newest collections that we put out all are coming through the lens of Cloth & Co. So much more of our playground for, you know, celebrating artistry, influencers and collaborators that we work with and, you know, coming out to the world with what, what we love and our point of view. And it, and it sounds like it's a little bit of a laboratory for you, as you, as you said. Absolutely. It's, so, it's where we do everything that we want to try and have fun with. But, you know, we have the power of the 75-year-old company backing us and, you know, a lot of learnings and knowledge coming from there to sort of, you know, support all of, all of what we're trying to do. Right, right. Well, I love that. Thank you again. A pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest industry news, browse job postings, or check out the latest product, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Albert Burge for Podfly. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you next week.